Hello, this is Phil Layton. We have on the show today, Ellen Spooner, who is a marine biologist and communication specialist and contractor with the ECS Federal in support of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. I think you'll find the show interesting. Take a listen. Well, Helen, thank you for joining us today. And, Thanks so much uh, for having me, Phil. Uh, excellent. And so you are uh, started off as a marine biologist, and now you're a communications specialist at NOAA. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that journey, how you started as a marine biologist, and what led you to uh, joining NOAA? Yeah. So uh, as I have found most career paths are winding, so is mine. I My love for the ocean and passion for it began when I was a little girl. My dad would always take me kayaking out in the ocean. And I'll never forget this one time we were off the coast of Mexico and saw a pod of dolphins off the shore. And we were like, oh my gosh, let's go find them. So we were paddling over and they kept swimming away from us. And eventually we were like, all right, I just set my paddle down and I looked down and one swam right underneath our kayak. Wow. And I was just like, this is such a magical experience. I want to be able to do this for the rest of my life. So from there, I did my bachelor's in science. I got my master's at the University of Michigan in fisheries. And actually, while I was doing my master's work, I realized that I was spending all this time collecting data, writing it up, and analyzing it to put it in a scientific publication, and then to be read by not that many people. And so that's actually what sparked my interest to become a communication specialist. Hmm because I realized that there's all this great science that's happening and not everybody is aware of it. And I really wanna make more people as excited about oceans and science as I am. So that's when I got the Canaus Marine Policy Fellowship, which brings people with marine science backgrounds into the federal government to do policy, communication, and science. And my specific position was as a communication specialist. And so I've been doing similar work for about five years and very thankful to be working with such a wonderful agency. So as a communication specialist, how do you get, what are you communicating and how do you do that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So what I'm communicating is the science that our scientists are doing. So for example, um, on the West Coast of the United States, we collect a bunch of different information, sea surface temperature from satellites, which it sounds like are some of the work that you used to do. Um, yeah. We collect uh, fish biomass, um, we monitor the location, distribution, and population size of whales and other marine mammals. And so part of what my job is to aggregate all of that information and summarize it in a way that people can understand so that we can set quotas for fisheries so that we can help protect whales from getting entangled in fishing gear and a bunch of other things. 
So is that, do you get the information out on websites or do you actually go and give talks? Yeah, so pre-COVID, we definitely went out and gave talks. We held, we still hold lots of workshops with fishermen, state partners, tribes, the public, um, and those used to be in person. Uh, we would also go to conferences, so we would communicate this science with other scientists. But now we do everything as everybody is with Zoom meetings, web conferences, um, and also the web. As we all know, we're in a digital era, and so communicating all of this information via the web is crucial and essentially the only way people are getting information right now. So I help develop web stories. I help maintain our website. I help uh, develop social media content, um, facilitate workshops with stakeholders in um, a variety of other ways of communicating that science. And I, I assume you have to answer questions too. People have, uh, do they, did you get some really interesting questions? You get something that's kind of out there that you go, wow, that's an interesting one, but uh, do you have any highlights for the type of questions you may get uh, from the public or? Yeah, we definitely get lots of different types of questions. Um, one that comes to mind is a recent interview I did with a fisherman for a story that I was writing about um, whales entangled in fishing gear on the West Coast. And he, it wasn't so much a question, it was just more of a comment that he said was, um, you know, fishermen are out on the water in unbelievably harsh conditions because they care about the ocean and they want to provide this resource to the public, which is seafood. And we are, we do care about the ocean and are conservationists. And oftentimes the media can portray them as the bad guys. And just mm -hmm. hearing him say that they do really care about the resource and want to help protect it and maintain it for future generations to come. I mean, fishing is often a generational industry where, you know, sons and daughters do what their mothers and fathers did and they want the next generation to be able to continue to have such a sustainable industry. So that was just really impactful for me and reminded me why I do my job. So it sounds like it's, there is a lot of interaction with, it's not just providing the data, but also the people that are impacted by this. So, um, so that it sounds like there's a lot of, you, you talk with the fishermen and, and that, that happens a lot. Uh, yes. Engaging with stakeholders and particularly fishermen is a huge part of NOAA's role. As managers of different resources in the ocean, it's crucial that anything we do, we communicate directly with the people that are going to be impacted by it and take their um, their experiences into consideration. They, as I said from the interview, they're the ones that are out on the water the most and they have a body of knowledge themselves that can help us inform our decisions as well. So it, there's definitely a back and forth and one of our principles is to engage with them early and often. And, and are you seeing any trends in the last uh, 10, 20, maybe shorter term uh, with the fisheries? Are there major changes or what do you see out going on? Yeah, so as I mentioned, 
my specific specialty is in communicating the science and not actually collecting the science, but a lot of the things that we're communicating to the fishermen are these uh, shifts in species distributions. For example, the American lobsters moving much further north and outward than uh, historical patterns of where they've been distributed. And these have major implications for the fisheries themselves. Fishermen have to spend more time out on the water going further out. It has higher gas costs for them. Obviously there, you know, it's different in different circumstances in different parts of the ocean, but this is definitely something that NOAA is monitoring and that we're uh, communicating with as much as possible. And I'm sure like on the, in the Pacific Ocean around Alaska, uh, there's the, the salmon is a big industry and that there's a lot of changes going along in Alaska and around the nor uh, Pacific Northwest, but that's something more difficult to track, I would assume, because you're, you have both an ocean going species and then you have something that's traveling inland where you can't use satellites as well. How do you keep track of all uh, of all the different data sets like that? Yeah, salmon are definitely a tricky species because of what you said. They spawn upriver, inland, and then as they grow to be juveniles, swim out to the ocean and live most of their adult life in the ocean. And actually, the United States Fish and Wildlife is responsible for managing most inland and freshwater fisheries that are not within state jurisdiction. So we work really closely with um, other agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife that I mentioned and also state and uh, tribal management bodies to share information and data. So sometimes we'll put uh, tracking or tagging, tagging devices on salmon to uh, keep track of where they go and then we'll share that information with the state or they'll do that and share that information with us. Um, and there's a variety of different ways that we collect information to, to help manage and understand how these species are being impacted. Is there decreases in the phytoplankton in certain areas uh, the f causing the fish to shift or is it, what do you, uh, what type of effects are there? Yeah, so I'm sure there are uh, changes in population size. Uh, what I'm aware of is changes in types of species of phytoplankton. Mm. So some phytoplankton are what our scientists like to describe as like hamburgers. So they have more uh, fats and juicy and they provide more nutrients. And some of them are like salads. They're skinnier and they don't provide as many nutrients. And so that change in what species are available of phytoplankton changed the uh, nutrient availability for salmon and, and other species. And, and specifically like around Alaska, is, is there more of the fat-based ones or the more salad type? Uh, is there a, an imbalance? Which way is it going? I actually don't know the specific trends that are happening around Alaska. I do know that it changes seasonally. So I know um, with like changing to winter, you know, you see different species and then summer, and then we see changes um, annually and decadally as well. So this past year we experienced um, the most, one of the second most expansive marine heat waves we've seen on the west coast of the United States. And that significantly impacted what uh, plankton species 
are in existence there. Exactly saying, are there more that are fatty and less? I I can't remember those details off the top of my head. I apologize, but those are the trends that we're seeing. And, and what effects on the fisheries? Uh, and I'm, I'm focusing on Alaska because, you know, I know about that's a big, you know, there's lots of fish there and it, it's, uh, there's a big change going on. Do you see, has Noah seen more fish up there, less, the catch? Have you seen any, uh, and maybe it's only temporal. It's like a season, uh, one season and it changes. But is there any long-term trends going on that you are aware of? I personally am not aware of any specific changes like they're catching more or they're catching less, but I do know that the there's been significant decreases as you know is often in the news with the amount of sea ice extent and in Alaska um, there's a lot of algae that grows on the bottom of sea ice, which is very important for the food web there. And so without that sea ice, it impacts the whole food chain system. And I know fisher fishermen are seeing changes there. I don't know that I can say there's like more fish overall or less fish overall, but I know like where they are being caught and different species have different, um, are experiencing different changes. And then, so if Noah finds like, hey, there's some concern we have, what, what, what would the agency do to try to do something about it? Is it just information it provides or is there anything else that they can do to help the fisheries if they see these changes and uh, they can make recommendations? Yeah, so... Uh, NOAA Fisheries has uh, legislation and policies in place that allow them to set rules such as um, cutting, setting quotas for the amount of fish that fishermen are allowed to catch. And so those are science-based decisions, and I don't make any policy yeah. decisions. <laughs> um, but those are some levers that we have to um, affect change, but we also have grant programs, um, emergency funding programs for fishermen when disasters happen. Um, so there are a variety of different ways that we're able to uh, help when we see major changes that are happening. And with, uh, I know the U.S. Fish and Game may restock lakes but in the ocean, it's different. Uh, is there, what happens if there's uh, all of a sudden a sudden drop in fish? Does, is there any physical mechanism that NOAA is able to do uh, to replenish? I, I think that's difficult, but uh, maybe with salmon you could, but uh, does NOAA have a fishery or some other uh, ocean-based uh way of supporting the sea life out there uh, besides, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so actually <laughs> NOAA really works really closely with state and um, tribal partners and we have hatcheries where okay. we are able to grow fish from eggs all the way to juveniles and replant them out. So for example, um, a, a major species that well, it used to be a major species in fisheries on the West Coast is uh, the white abalone. And now they're an endangered species due to a variety of reasons, um, including historical overfishing. And we 
have hatcheries where we're growing a lot of those seedlings and then able to replant them out in the wild to help repopulate those populations. And we have similar programs for coral, uh, salmon, uh, a variety of other species. And, and your, uh, and so, and how do you track those species? You know, are you, uh, satellite, what type of things allow you to see how those populations are faring after you've done some of these programs? Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of different ways of uh, measuring and tracking progress for these uh, fish populations. Some of it, it does include uh, collecting satellite data. Some of it includes uh, fisheries vessel data. So how much fish, fi commercial fishermen catch, we record that information. Uh, we also have uh, scuba divers that go out and collect observational data for corals and others. Um, there's a variety of different technologies that we use. We're starting to get more into using sail drones to collect information as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that we keep track of these. And then, so it sounds like you work a lot with the uh, fishermen. So some of that data comes from the fishermen. And if you had, if NOAA has to, uh, cut back on some, the, the, the catches, how do they, work with the fishermen to determine those levels? So NOAA Fisheries has what is called fishery management councils. And we have one council for each large marine ecosystem in the United States. And what and this is set up by the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which was put through by the United States Congress. And so who sits on these fishery management councils includes um, fishermen who are actually in the industry, people from NGOs, uh, nonprofit organizations, scientists uh, from federal agencies and tribes and other stakeholders. And it is up to the Fishery Management Council to actually set the quota. So NOAA, we provide the science to them. We say this is the, the current stock status and they're the ones that decide uh, what the quota will be each year. Oh, that's fantastic. So it is uh, really a, a participatory uh, method. I was going to say, it definitely is because that's the only way that it'll work. I mean, they're the ones that are having the regulations impact their business. And so without working with them, they, it won't be successful. So how has working under uh, COVID been with uh, your your position? That must be interesting now that, uh, you know, everybody's working remotely. So how's that been for the last year and a half for you personally? Yeah, I mean, for me, it has just doubled the um, need for digital communication. We used to, as I said, we used to travel and hold in-person workshops. And when COVID hit, we were unable to do that. And so I was, first of all, very thankful to keep my job <laughs> because I know <laughs> a lot of people lost their job in that time. And because a lot of the communications that we did before was already digital, we just doubled down on that. So we did more uh, web stories, more social media content, more uh, virtual conferences. We've actually held several virtual conferences where we can um, exchange information. And so... I think it's actually increased my workload, uh, which I think in the long term for the agency will be good because it helped move us forward in terms of, you know, how modern communication is. But I do hope to go back to in-person meetings at some point. 
Yeah, that there. I it's usually I think what we're going to enter into is some type of hybrid. So uh, it'll be interesting. You know, everybody cleared out of uh, not everybody, but a lot of people cleared out of the uh, cities and went to some other location. But now every once in a while, you still need to get together. You need to go actually have those in person meetings. So I guess when you're communicating with the fishermen or all your stakeholders. It's just a phone conference, a Zoom call, something like that. Yeah, often these times, that's how it is. Um, we use Google Hangouts, so it's often Google Meets is how we yeah. communicate with them. Um, but like you said, there's nothing that can replace those in-person conversations that you have. Oftentimes, they're usually like when there's a break in the meeting and you're going to grab a coffee and you go up to someone and you're like, hey, you had this really cool idea. I want to talk to you more about that. Let's think of ways that we can work together to address this. So, um, And some of that does actually happen still, I've noticed in the chats. Um, that happen on the side of conferences. And then there's uh, usually email exchange or something afterwards. So some of it still is in existence, but um, yeah, it'd be great to get back. Yeah. I, I think it, it'll be, it'll be exciting. Uh, it'll, uh, the challenge will be is uh, how everything will play out. You know, the, it's a, it's, it's a new, uh, it forced a lot of us to think about um, how we communicate differently. And yeah, uh, and so uh, do you see, uh, being that I, I, I hold dear, I have concerns about the planet, do you see any uh, uh, trends that uh, moving forward with climate change, the, uh, do you see any, anything that uh, out there that you have concerns or you see some trends from that, from your perspective um, on, on climate change? Yeah, so I am eternally an optimist. And so while I do see like major difficulties ahead of us in terms of addressing climate change and specifically in their imp the impact on the ocean and fisheries, but I also see it as an opportunity to advance new technologies and new ways of doing things so that we can better adapt because the oceans will always be changing and they always have. And I think NOAA as an agency is moving more towards dynamic management that allows a little bit more flexibility in the, in, to better and quickly adapt to the changes that we're seeing. And I'm optimistic about it because there are so many great people that I work with that are so passionate and dedicated to it. And we've already seen um, a lot of great impacts from that. And then just in terms of like, climate change in general outside of like NOAA, I'm hopeful about it because I like to point to the example of um, when we saw there was a huge hole in the ozone layer. I think it was back in like the 80s from uh, aerosols being in the air. But the whole world came together and signed an agreement and we reduced the amount of aerosols that were being um, released into the, into the ozone. And now we're seeing decreases in the size of the hose ozone hole. So that is something that is on the same scale as climate change. And we were able to make a difference there. So I'm hopeful that we're able to make a difference with climate change as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. It was really interesting to hear about NOAA. And I never knew about all the interactions that NOAA has with the fisheries. So thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, 
thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Phil, for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk to people about NOAA and our science and share the word of what we're doing. Excellent. Thanks. This is Phil Layton with Pi Energy. We just had on the show Ellen Spooner, a communications specialist. We talked about NOAA and the communication of data that NOAA produces with the stakeholders and the general public. If you have any questions, visit us at www.pienergy.com. Thank you for listening.